Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, we get the privilege of speaking with one of the leading minds in the HR space and my good friend, Jay Fulcher. Jay is the CEO of Zenefits, an award-winning people ops platform. Jay is one of the first people I go to for advice, especially when it comes to running a global business. Jay has run two other companies, Uyala and Agile Software. He is also the author of the book, People Operations, which explains how leaders can stop spending so much time on HR paperwork and truly focus on people work. On the show today, Jay and I talk about the great resignation and what he's doing as a leader to prevent burnout and build a resilient company. We also discuss people claiming to be expert online coaches and how not to participate in any of that noise. Jay has so much knowledge to share, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Jay, the man, the myth, the legend, one of my most favorite, favorite people. More difficult to get you than the president. So thank you so much for joining. Hey, Stephanie, good to see you. I'm happy to be with you today. I'm so excited for this. So let's get right in. I want to talk about your childhood. I want to talk about, you know, you grew up in Northern California. Um, You've lived in a lot of different places all over the world. Let's chat about that. Okay. So talk to me about growing up in Northern California and where have you lived and what have you experienced? Yeah, so I'm old enough, you know, I sort of grew up in a setting before it was really Silicon Valley. And so, you know, our, my childhood home was in the orchards of Santa Clara Valley, which now is um, the actual address where I grew up is just a few miles from what is now the big Apple campus. And so kind of the metamorphosis of, of what I experienced as a kid kind of blew me away, right? Because we went from this sort of place that was pretty agricultural and pretty, um, you know, back in the day, the valley was known as the Valley of Heart's Delight. It was feeding a huge part of the U.S. Funny enough, that part of Northern California sort of still does, but it's now all been relegated to the Central Valley. And so as I was coming up around sort of through my high school years is really when the valley began to become what it is today. And it was primarily through the semiconductor industry and variety of sort of early legendary companies that we all know today and we sort of take for granted. But back then, you know, Apple Computer was, you know, the sparkle in somebody's eye. And my dad was a history teacher. You know, he taught at pretty much every level, but primarily was a high school history teacher. And he had both Steve Jobs and and Steve Wozniak in his high school classes. And so wow, that was kind of my first. how crazy is that? That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very crazy. And they were shitty students. They weren't very engaged and it was difficult to get them to, to sort of, you know, kind of pay attention to whatever else. And I think that's, you know, somewhat famously now, you know, those, those were guys that were a part of a generation of iconic tech founders who eschewed sort of education for the passion that they had for tech. And so... Anyway, I, I, I got exposed sort of that way as a kid in junior high and high school as the Valley was undergoing this big change. And so for me, it was just a huge kind of an awakening. 
And so when I got into school, I was a really not very gifted athlete, but I was really convinced that I wanted to play college football. My brother is older than I was, and he had a, a great college career and went on to actually sign a professional contract. And so I thought that was sort of my destiny. And I found out pretty quickly that that was not going to be my thing. And thank God I was a good student. And so for me, I was pretty much almost immediately kind of smitten with, all right, so this this tech industry seems really interesting. And I really got caught up in that. And so that's kind of how I got started. So did you have siblings other than your brother? Yeah, I'm the baby of four kids, two girls and two boys. And you know, the older kids would say that I was the golden child. I would say I was the one that was completely picked on and abused, relegated to uh, to the, the the worst position in the family. But anyway, yeah. So four four <laughs> That's kids. That's hysterical. Wow. Yep. Okay. And then and then were you close to your parents or yeah, were you really kind of close. a latchkey kid and on your own? Oh, no, I, w- <clears throat> I was I was close to them. Although you know, when you're the fourth kid, and there was a a distance between the first three and myself, you know, they they call me the love child. I I I know later, many many years later, to know that I was a mistake. But at the end of the day, what I what I discovered is I got a lot of really great time with my parents. One of the things that I uh, frankly, you know, sort of rely on quite a bit in terms of what I was able to utilize in terms of how I was raised to my career is the fact that, um, as I said, my dad was a history professor and a history teacher at the high school and college level. And he also basically started building these programs where he was taking American teachers all over the world to teach and to learn other cultures and basically being involved in sort of these history exchange programs. And so from the time I was about seven years old, I traveled with him extensively every time he got an assignment somewhere. And so that experience was really pretty formative. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We certainly didn't have a lot of resources, but we had some really rich experiences, you know, that really allowed me as a young kid to be exposed to a lot of global thinking and understanding how sort of interconnected everything is in terms of our economies and the way that people think and act and behave. And even though the cultures have all kinds of nuances and differences, there's also a lot of connectivity between people. And and that's been a, a big advantage. You know, a lot of American executives that get into tech haven't necessarily seen the world. They haven't traveled extensively. They haven't necessarily lived and worked in other locations beyond sort of the bubble that they're in. And so having had that opportunity in the in the 80s and early 90s was was really formative for me. And it really, I think, sort of put me on a path. So it's interesting that you say that because I have four, as you know, and my oldest is 26 and my youngest is 11. So the yep. funny thing is I have the reverse story. So everybody goes, oh, the little one, they're like, oh, oops. And I was like, no, actually, he was the only one that was planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it, then they, it, and then I just walk away and I leave. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is interesting, you know, that every family sort of feels like they have, I think, in some ways, some level of precision and then some level of happy sort of set of circumstances that sort of occur. And you end up making of that what you're going to, whether it's how your baby sort of thinks about their place in the family or the role that they play or whatever. Right. And of course, their personality and, and kind of what they bring to 
the overall flavor of the family has a huge amount to say about it. So. Absolutely. And I remember, you know, when, when my oldest was, was in, in first grade and she went to, she went to first and second grade in Redwood Shores right next to the Oracle campus. Yeah. And I remember taking her out so many times. She's been in, she's 26. She's been in 38 countries and the little one is 11 and he's been in, in 22 countries. And that experience, that culture that, like you said, the global connectivity, how we do sports differently, how we connect differently, how we engage differently, different systems, school systems, corporate systems, transportation systems, they've really gotten a great flow on that. And so I just think travel and other people's perspectives. It, is it's so huge. I mean, it, it is so mind ones. expanding, right? It just it just completely broadens their perspective in ways that I think a lot of times as parents, we can't even anticipate what kind of impact it's going to have. But I can't say enough about right. how positive it was. And, and like you, you know, I, I really recognized pretty early on when I was having my kids, and I have four kids, that it was really important to try to do what I could to kind of pay that forward. Because what my parents did for me was just such a gift. And I felt like I had a responsibility Absolutely. to try to do the same thing for my kids, which, which we've been able to, you know, I've been fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that. I agree completely. Jay, I recently read something that you wrote on the Great Resignation. I want to talk about that. What are your thoughts on the Great Resignation? And what were you feeling during this time as a leader? You're a very, very different leader than so many of the leaders I've interviewed. I want to talk to you about the personal aspect of the Great Resignation. What were you thinking about through your head? And then also how it was affecting you professionally in hiring, retaining, developing, et cetera. Yeah, so I guess the first thing, Stephanie, I would say is that I'm not one of those guys in their 50s that is cantankerous and sort of snarky about the millennial and Gen Z generations in the workforce. I actually think they're bringing something that is long overdue to the workforce and to the workplace. And, and really what that is, is that they're really focused on having a life and having a, an entire complete whole kind of a life, you know, not one where they're working to live, but instead they're, they're living to work. You know, they're, they're trying to find things right. that matter. They're trying to find things that have purpose. And this is probably going to be a recurring theme, I suspect, in this conversation. But I think at the end of the day, these, this segment of the workforce is really focused on you know, they don't really want to be managed. They want to be led. They want to be given opportunities to stretch and to grow and to develop. But they're also not prepared to sacrifice anything and everything to be able to uh, succeed. And that's different than my generation. We were willing to make sacrifices that I would argue that were not healthy, that were, um, absolutely, you know, not fair, that were not just in some cases. And so I think laying that groundwork is kind of important to, to kind of talk about what's going on with the great resignation right now. Cause I think one of the things that's very clear is that I think people are absolutely kind of rethinking in some ways testing. So what really matters to me and what am I prepared to do in order to have the success and to have the, the career experience that I want to that I want to be able to have. And so I think that's leading us down a path to a point where pre-pandemic, I think employers felt more in control basically around a lot of different things related to sort of the social contract that goes into how employees and employers interact. And I think post-pandemic, that's completely been flipped on its head. The script has been flipped. And at this point, employees 
in fact, have way more leverage than they ever did before. And I think they're discovering that they actually always had this leverage to some degree, but only now are they starting to, in some ways, begin to utilize sort of the leverage that they have. And so the thing that I talk about a lot, and of course, you know, our business, we work with a lot of, I mean, thousands and thousands of small and mid-sized businesses that are trying to kind of go from early stages of uh, development and growth and maturity to later stages. And for those companies, I talk to them all the time about the fact that, in my view, we're never going back to how things used to be, you know, before February of 2020. And that, you know, as I tell people a lot of times in shorthand, right, the cat's out of the bag. Like, we're never putting the genie back in the bottle. Whatever euphemism you want to use, I mean, forevermore, we're going to be dealing with a hybrid workforce that is going to actually relish the flexibility that they've discovered through this horrible process that we've all been through over the last year and a half or two years. And while the pandemic has been just devastating in so many ways, uh, at the end of the day, this is probably one of the areas where I actually think there are there is some good that can come from this. And part of what's good that can come from this is is this understanding that while it isn't true for all industries and in all situations, it is true for a lot of a lot of industries that it is possible for us to provide a more flexible more empowered work environment that allows people to be in some ways in situations where they are either feeling controlled or, or, or where, frankly, employers think that they have to control their workforce. And instead, you know, the shackles can be taken off. And in fact, we can try to basically put people in the best possible position for them to be able to make the impact that they want to make. And I think if we can, um, so so Jade, that's yeah, that's great. But let me let me talk to you about the let me talk to you about the converse conversely. Let's talk about that, okay? Sure. In the last year, I mean, you know, you know, I coach a lot of executives. Our business lines are business consulting, uh, high performance coaching, and crisis. Okay. So in the last six months, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me and said, "Hey, Steph, can I chat with you about culture?" And me, me, because of where we are right now, I'm thinking. Oh yeah, absolutely. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like culture, like how do I do this? Like how do I measure performance? How do I create culture remotely? How do I create this hybrid? And these are, I mean, Jay, these are all people that you you and I know well. Okay, these are not like brand new CEOs. These are not brand new leaders. These are not brand new VCs. These are guys been there, done that, got the t-shirt a few times, okay? And they're literally, I mean, you can just see in their eyes that they're like, almost like I don't have any control and I don't have a metrics. I don't know what to do. And so I want to talk to you about Zenefits and I want to talk to you about what are you guys doing to keep your teams engaged and how do you hear them? What are you doing? Yeah, so it's a great question, Steph. And I, it's not surprising to me that you're talking to people that are, are sort of minted executives that have had a track record of success who are feeling out of their depth and are feeling in some ways like, wow, the world has shifted on me and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. And I would just argue that from a culture perspective and culture, sometimes I think we work too hard at trying to overdefine it, but, you know, culture is sort of, how do we do things here? You know, culture is an action thing. You know, it's not posters and ping pong tables and all the, all the stuff that sometimes 
I think gets conflated and frankly confused for culture. Culture is about it's an how, operating system. How do we behave? And it's an operating system. It's a it's yes. a it's a way of of making basically our purpose come alive. It's how do we go about that? And so related to the Zenibus thing, as you know, I walked into a situation that was pretty much a cluster, right? It, it was poorly managed. It was poorly led. And, you know, I, I've not really talked a lot about that over the years because there's really no upside in doing that. But the reality was, is that the company really needed, in my view, to be kind of reimagined with some of the right kind of foundational ideas uh, as part of what, what does it mean to build a company? And so one of the things that I decided, because I think part of your question is sort of like, so Jay, what have you done in your company around culture? The first thing that we did is, is I talked about the fact that it's really important in my view that we have missionaries, not mercenaries in terms of the mindset we have about what we're building. In other words, if you're here exclusively for the stock price or because you love the fact that the company's referred to as a unicorn or because you're counting down the days until an IPO or, or whatever the monetization event might be or whatever else, I would question whether or not those are truly the right motivations. I've always felt like when right. people ask me about exits, I typically talk about execution because when we do the right things and you're performing and you deliver the results that you need to, the exits take care of themselves. And I'm lucky. I, I mean, I've had, Absolutely. I've had five or six of those exits over the course of those years. So I'm one of those guys that's got a bunch of t-shirts with logos on them, you know, that I, I try not to trot out too much. But at the end of the day, if you focus on the fundamentals of what your mission and purpose is all about, and you're really focused on operational excellence, I have always found that that leads you down the path toward the kinds of outcomes and the, and the kinds of exits that everybody's hoping for. So having this missionary purpose-filled approach to what you're doing, I think is really critical. And so it's really important that you begin to attract those kinds of people into your company. And to the degree that you have people already in the company, you've got to be able to kind of take them through a process of helping them to reconnect with the purpose and, and, then, and then the mission. The other thing that we did very early on, right, because when I first came in, right, I basically laid off about half the company. And my first yeah. week, we let go of 420 employees, you know, so that was a, a really, Yeah, people really, were a giant, big, huge fan of you. Everybody. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a very, no, 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 no new CEO wants to start off that way. And yet, you know, at the time I had a board that was talking about wanting to make these changes themselves and, you know, Jay, you don't need to do this. And then, and then you'll come in. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to make those changes myself because I want to be able to explain to everyone that remains in the company, what are the motivations going forward? Why did we make the choices that we did? You know, how do we start to be a lot more transparent about kind of how we're th sort of thinking through this? The other thing that I had, which was a, a really big help is, you know, I had some really good advice and counsel around the company that I was relying on, one of which was Ben Horowitz, Andreessen Horowitz. And, you know, Ben's written on this topic of culture pretty extensively. And I'm a, I guess I'm a bit of a disciple of a lot of his writing and a lot of, of what he talks about related to culture. But we basically followed a, a pretty simple formula that he lays out in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which was number one, I wanted to stick with what was working because at the end of the day, Zenefits 
you know, in 2015 and 16, especially in 2015, was probably the fastest growing SaaS company on the planet. And so it's not like the company wasn't doing some things relatively well. And it certainly wasn't that the company hadn't tapped into a huge underserved market, small and mid-sized businesses that needed an HR platform to more easily be able to basically empower their workforce and enable their workforce to be able to, to kind of focus on the things that really matter and not focus on sort of the administrivia that sometimes legacy HR systems force you to, to focus on. So we kept what worked. But the second thing that we did is we created some new rules, you know, and in some cases for Zenefits especially, they were shocking because, you know, I made pretty specific statements about not every customer is a good customer. Not every contract is one we should hold on to. You know, yes. some of the things that we have found ourselves in the process of trying to prosecute from a value proposition perspective do not make sense for our company. So I, I cut up contracts. I, I gave people their money back. I, we, we, we did some things that, at least in that moment, was pretty shocking for the company. But it set a tone around... Here's our mission. Here's our purpose. Here's what we want to mean to our customers, what we want to mean to the marketplace. And we don't want to set ourselves up to fail because we're trying to chase every single shiny thing that potentially is out there. I think the other thing that for us was really important that I knew pretty much immediately was, was going to be necessary is that it was going to take me longer to try to adopt or adapt the existing leadership team to sort of the shorthand that I was interested in in terms of how we were going to run the company. So I brought in a lot of outside leaders that I either had experience with or that I certainly knew and had a lot of confidence in who could come in and run the offense that I wanted to run as fast as possible rather than trying to go much, much more slowly in a way that may or may not actually end up being successful with the people that were in the company. And then the final thing that we did, you know, after sort of the new rules and, you know, being really clear about keeping the things that were working, but then being really aggressive about abandoning the things that made no sense, is we made every single decision in the ensuing next couple of years through this, through this lens of what our priorities are. You know, we were just, I was maniacal about making sure that we didn't get distracted, that we kind of stayed true to the strategy that we put in place. So those were the ways in which that we sort of built what I think now today is a, a culture that's allowed the company to grow, you know, significantly. We, we now have a bigger company today than we did when I walked in and we have more than a thousand fewer employees. Wow. That's an incredible metric. Jay, talk to me and tell the listeners about your book, who should be reading it and what is it called and what got you to actually sit down and pen a book? Yeah, I mean, I use it all the time. <laughs> it's People Operations and it talks about, uh, in fact, the, the subtitle is How to Automate HR, Design a, a Great Employee Experience and Unleash Your Workforce. And so it's really exactly that. You know, it's a playbook for small and mid-sized companies that are trying to kind of navigate the new world of work. And I don't need to explain this to you because you know this so well. 
But small businesses, right, they are just inundated with so many challenges that make it really hard, not only to build a, a business, you know, to get a business off the ground, but then to scale it. I mean, it's just, it's very, very difficult. And so the thing that everyone sort of, I think, fixates on sometimes is, yeah, you know, payroll's really hard. And that's why there's a million payroll companies trying to basically solve that problem. Well, payroll is not the only thing that's hard, you know, it, and it is difficult and it does require, you know, that you have some technology and some expertise and some process that you can rely on to be able to get it right. But actually, all of it's hard, you know, hiring and finding and recruiting great talent, getting them onboarded properly, managing the life cycle of the employee in such a way where those employees feel like they've got good ongoing points of feedback about how they're doing and how, you know, what, where the growth opportunities are for them and how they're going to be developed and, and all of that sort of thing. Frankly, all the connectivity issues around, you know, how do you and I stay in close connection with our people, especially in this new paradigm, right, where we don't necessarily see our teams on a regular basis. Or right. in the case of right. the last year and a half, we really don't see them at all, at least in my case. You know, I've, I've got hundreds of employees. I haven't seen them in a year and a half, not in person. And so this is basically a playbook to help companies figure out where are they on the maturity curve? How do they get up that curve effectively? Uh, we give them lots of ideas and concepts to sort of look at and to utilize as a way to kind of not only measure where they are today, but frankly, to decide where they want to go and how quickly do they want to get there. And then obviously, because we're a we're a software company and we have a tech platform. And then we talk a lot about what technology now can do for you that in the past we all had to sort of manually or otherwise had to you know, spend a lot of time doing sort of paperwork instead of people work. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people out of the paperwork part of what they're doing and to automate all the super silly stuff that none of us really want to spend a lot of time on and instead start to focus on the number one asset in today's environment, which is your workforce. It's your talent. It's your talent. Absolutely. Yeah. Jay, tell our listeners again, what is the name of the book? It's called People Operations. Yeah. Okay. And we'll link it. The one thing I want our listeners to walk away with from this specific topic before we move on to burnout is that I interview a ton of leaders. I've been a part of 11 global startups. I've worked globally. I've been a founder three different times. Jay is the real deal. You've never heard me say that whenever people are listening to the podcast, he sees the field differently. He is going to tell you things that other people won't tell you. He gets to the problem quickly. He's decisive. He makes great decisions and he apologizes very quickly when he's wrong. So you guys get the book. Um, it's absolutely amazing. We'll link it at the bottom of the podcast. And the book is really all about how do we go from old school HR thinking to new school people operations thinking. In other words, People are at the heart of all of our businesses. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It's people that make it happen. And so that's really what this book kind of talks about is it's no longer sufficient to think in traditional ways about HR. We've got to put a, a new set of priorities in place. So I appreciate the kind comments. And, and the other thing, too, that I just will say, I was such a reluctant author. I, I'm, I think I shared this story with you privately, but like, I did not yes. necessarily want to write this book. And when the publisher came to us and said, you know, we really think you guys have a lot to say and we think you should go do it. I had no clue we would be on five bestseller lists. So it's really, really gratifying to see 
that the thought leadership and the experiences that we've gained over working with 30,000 companies is now starting to be reflected in a book that people are utilizing to basically build better performing companies. So with you saying that, I want to take this a step further and you nailed it whenever it's, it's essentially people over everything, like it's people over everything. Whenever I coach an executive, we coach to where they are. We coach to their measurement of success. Jay, mm-hmm. what's your measurement of success? Nine times out of 10 people or teams or talent aren't in that. And so we, and it's not because it's not important to them. It's just, they're thinking about their peak performance. They're thinking about how to get them to the next level. Yeah. But it's really important from an empathetic connection and a self-awareness connection that these leaders start to engage and that those teams understand that that's a priority for the executive. So even if it's not something that we're actually working on like a pain point, we absolutely integrate talent, talent appreciation, talent development, talent retention into everything that we do. And I think this book covers all aspects of old school to new school, but new school with kindness and empathy. And this is what we're doing now. So I just, I really appreciate that. Yeah. 100%. Yep. So let's talk about burnout because it's such a big word. We're talking about it so much and you know me, Jam, really big on the, on using the same dictionary. Burnout means something different to not only generations, but also to the, to the size of the company and, and obviously geographic locations. What do you believe about burnout and how does it play a part in your life? Yeah, it's a great question. I have to tell you, I'm excited every time somebody like you is sort of focused on that topic. I think you might know that we've got a a partnership with Ariana Huffington and her business Thrive Global. And Ariana, I think, has done a great job of not just advancing the cause around the importance of sleep and the importance of life balance and all the rest of it, but one of the things that she has been, I think, a leader around from a topical perspective is this notion of mental health, because really burnout is mental health. And so, you know, what we've seen, I think, come into sharp contrast, certainly in the last two years, given kind of the macro situation and related to the pandemic, is the fact that we, for far too long, have have made it, I think, very difficult for people to self-assess how am I doing? How in balance is my life? You know, you are a really good example with four children. You've got a busy life. You're running a company. You have a lot going on. And the reality is, is that if you don't have in some ways a strategy for how you're going to not only manage everything that you, all the balls that you have in the air, but also if you don't have kind of this ongoing practice of checking in with yourself and understanding that the check-in's critical and, and being able to utilize resources that are available to you that many times people don't even know are available to them to be able to help basically work through whatever the challenges might be is, is really critical. So burnout is not only just a, something that's talked about in the headlines these days, but it, it, it's a real thing. And I think people are really suffering at this point because of you know the pressures that have been placed on them in terms of working from home, no child care, being in a situation yeah. where oftentimes employers are making it more difficult rather than more easy to have more flexibility in, in the way in which they're working. And so all of that kind of combines or conspires to make the situation really difficult for people and people struggle with that. So again, we tried to in not only embedded in our product and in our, our platform, but we've built some wellness applications and some capabilities 
to try to help people with, with the notion of, first of all, how do I check in on how I'm doing? How do I sort of self-assess, you know, kind of what I'm going through? Oftentimes, Stephanie, as you might imagine, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for people, I think, in some ways to be validated that, man, I, I don't feel great about how things are going. And, and once they go through this process, right, they can begin to feel better about the fact that, okay, like, I'm not imagining this, like, I'm not functioning as well as I otherwise could be. And so what kinds of things could I be doing? What micro steps could I be taking in order to be in a, a better place and to be more in balance and to be more in control? And frankly, ultimately, right, it's a good thing for the employee because obviously their mental health is critical. And it's a great thing for the employer in that you need healthy, happy, well-balanced employees driving your business forward. And so anyway, Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's burnout a is a ecosystem. big topic these days. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that. But before, before you before we go on, have you heard of form score? Uh, yeah. With Rob Stevenson, have you heard have you heard that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not really familiar with it, but I have heard I have okay. heard of that. Yeah. So Ariana Huffington, the reason why I ask is because you brought up Ariana. So yeah. Ariana Huffington um, has a guest a guest speaker often. Jen Fisher. Jen Fisher runs People at Deloitte. Okay. So so Rob Stevenson, I met him at the very beginning of the pandemic. He has come up with an app. Unfortunately, I feel really sad about this, but I haven't actually kept up with it. He came up with an app that's a community, and basically before every meeting, you score and like. At anything under a seven or, you know, six or a seven gets a check-in. So maybe I score and you see it and you're in my community, you're one of my trusted advisors and you're like, hey, Steph, what's up? Let's chat after this. Let's spend 10 or 15 minutes. And it's grown exponentially around sleep and great habits and habit stacking. And when do you check in with yourself and realize it? For me personally, I feel so incredibly blessed because I have so many people in my direct circle that are not yes people. So they will see me. I had a board meeting last week and one of the guys pinged me and he said, get the hell off Zoom. He's like, you look exhausted. You're not firing on every cylinder. Let's chat. And I was like, you're not the boss of me. But it was really incredible to have those people that are just not going to put up with your crap. They're going to call you on it. You know, Jay, you look like hell. Like, what do we need to do? Like, let's get together and figure this out. And I think as we keep pushing it and we keep looking at our, especially our remote workers, which we're going to talk about now, you know, how do you identify this burnout from somebody who's maybe not as self-aware or in tune with themselves? How do you identify this remotely? You haven't seen your people in a year and a half. Yeah. So one of the ways we do that, you know, just to kind of get prescriptive for a minute, is we spend time making sure that people are taking vacations. We make sure that people are actually finding ways in which to be able to get away from work, to be able to make sure that they've got, you know, some level of separation from the intensity of what we've, you know, like I said, we, we've got a, a high growth company that is driving really hard and I make no apologies for that, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of why people, frankly, get attracted to Zenefits and to our leadership team in the first place is because we've got big ambitions about how we're changing the world and what we're doing and all the rest of it. But that being said, because we have this sort of high intensity culture, that's all the more reason that people have got to create space for themselves. And, you know, I know for me, it as a broken down, you know, former athlete of many, many decades ago, that means a daily workout. I've got to get exercise. I've got to be able to make sure that I'm 
eating right and sleeping enough. And, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on sort of the actual health metrics for myself because I just know I perform better in a work, in, in a work function. I definitely perform better uh, if I'm doing those things. By the way, I also happen to be a better husband and a better father and a better friend and all the rest of it. So we really try to make sure that we're checking in with our team on those kinds of, of issues related to how are they taking care of themselves. We put forward a lot of initiatives and programs. By the way, a lot of them we don't necessarily pay for. They're programs that are available that we try to basically make sure that people are aware of because we can't afford, mm. in our case, to do anything and everything in, in the same way that maybe somebody right. that's working at Deloitte might be able to go do. And yet at the same time, our employees tell us through surveys and through a lot of direct you know, feedback that I get when I sit down with people and I sort of go, so Stephanie, how are you doing? You know, how, how are things going? How are you managing everything? And what, what I hear from them is, is that, yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I discovered something that came through the company Slack channel the other day around wellness that really works for me. And what we're discovering, I think, too, at least with our workforce and with a lot of our customers is that there's no one right answer or one right thing that works for everybody. Everyone's going to have a different kind of thing that kind of appeals to them, whatever that might be. And so that's what we really work on. I mean, this all started, it was kind of born out of this cultural change that we were making a few years ago that I described a few minutes ago with you. And what I was starting to see is that we were having a number of employees that were suffering from burnout. They were literally having mental health crises. They were, they were in situations where they needed to go get professional help. They needed to go take prolonged sabbaticals. They needed to take, you know, basically a leave of absence from the company. When you start to see signs of that, you know you've got issues. And that caused us to kind of rethink and reset the thermometer on like, where, how are we driving our team? How are we driving our priorities? And, and frankly, what messaging are we putting out there to people in terms of making sure that they have permission to do the basic care and connection that they need to do for themselves? And so anyway, that's, that's how we've kind of gone about it. And I think, you know, the, the good news is that wellness isn't some sort of a nice to have anymore. It's now an imperative. You know, exactly. it's something that is critical and it doesn't matter how big your company is, right? I mean, whether you're talking about some corner coffee shop that's got five or six baristas or whether you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, a Fortune 500 company, you've got to really be focused on and reinforcing the importance of employee well-being. Well, to close out this part about burnout, you know, I'm all about feedback and, you know, like I give it even when it's not asked. And we were, I sat on a panel with Jen, um, who is, by the way, exceptional and amazing at Deloitte. Lo just love everything that she's doing. But, you know, Deloitte's a client. And my people are the managing directors. Those are the people that I'm, I'm talking to. And these are like the one or two down from the CEO or one or two down from the president. And I was talking to them and you know what, Jay, I literally had probably 15 or 20 conversations in a month and no one, number one, Jen's been with the company for over 20 years. Okay. Number one, number two, no one knew her. No one had any idea what she did and they were not aware of any wellness programs. And so I took that back and I said, hey, I mean, really nicely, of course, just, you know, hey, just so you know, like I've been talking to these people and they're struggling. I mean, they're really struggling. Here are some of the things and she, nobody could believe it. They couldn't believe that 
they had thought they had done such a great job with promoting and messaging, like you said, and so many people didn't have any idea about it. And I just think that's another amazing thing that you guys have done so well. And you know, there are some, there are sort of notoriously difficult stories about professional services firms, whether it's consulting firms, uh, law yes. firms, whatever, where those cultures, at least traditionally, have not necessarily right. been set up to reinforce, especially the rank and file health and well-being. A lot of times it's a trend. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. It, I have no a, idea. I, 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 you don't have to agree with <laughs> me. but Really? But I didn't it, know it, that. But, but those churn and burn cultures, I, again, I'll just say, yeah. I, that's a thing of the past. You are not going to effectively recruit people into those kinds of environments nearly like they used to. I mean, you'll always get people to come to work for you because they can throw money at that problem. But ultimately, right. the best people are not going to stick around in that environment for long. No. And so trying to no. retain employees, engage them, and frankly, put them in a position where, quite frankly, they're going to be around for the long haul and where you can leverage the yes. investment you've made in them is going to be, I think, paramount to what degree are you sort of focused on the employee well-being opportunity. So. So I love how you just set up so beautifully my next segment. Do you remember how you and I met? Remind me. Okay. I'm going to tell you how you and I met and when I knew that I absolutely had to have you in my life. I was so fed up with hearing about another Oh, I do coach, remember now. Another executive coach. <laughs> so I'm going to read it. Okay. Cause this okay. was, I literally jumped up and down and I was screaming and I was like, I don't care if I have to fly there. I don't care if he's flying here. I don't care where he is. I need to talk to him. As a preamble, I got to say, I, I kind of went off. I have to admit, I kind of, I kind of went I, off. Hey, you know what? It was the most, I, everybody in my company knows who you are because <laughs> I was literally like, finally, finally somebody says it. So from Jay Fulcher, enough. I've had it with the ridiculous self-promotion and vacuous claims to all of these so-called, quote, experts, too often unproven sellers, startup gurus, unproven VCs, and executive coaches talking about growth hacks and formulaic easy ways to advance your business and or your career. Don't mislead and suggest it's easy or simple or that luck doesn't play a huge role or that lots of help isn't needed or that you as experts have all of the answers. Success takes work. Study time, grit, courage, experimentation, resilience, and a belief in yourself that may not always be steady, but never goes completely away. While there are a few good books and great mentors out there, there is no substitute for digging in and doing the hard work. The level of commitment and dedication isn't for everybody, and it starts with understanding that there's no shortcuts. Hashtag embrace the grind, hashtag snake oil, and our friendship began. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do remember that you reached out to me right on the heels of that. Yeah. And, and that was, I think that, it, I think it was, was post. Start. I think it was post and I jumped on. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was a week for me. That was laptop lifestyle, toes in the sand, Bali <laughs> coaches. I made $250,000. Yes. You made $250,000, but you spent 236,000 on Facebook ads. It's BS. And yeah. you were so poignant in calling it. There is no elevator. There are stairs, my friend. Work hard. Surround yourself by amazing people. I'm not saying that there are not great mentors. I'm not saying that there are not good coaches. 
I'm not saying that I'm for everyone. You know, I'm hard. I'm difficult. I will get you past your excellence, past where you want to be. But all of these noises that are in the world or on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on Instagram, how many DMs do I get weekly of saying, take your business to the next level? And I, and you know what? I was like, oh, where, where have you done that? I want to talk about your unicorn. Where have your unicorns been? Where have you exited successfully? What was successfully for you? And then I never heard back. Nobody was emailing me back. Nobody was texting me back. Yeah. I was on a very, very difficult Forbes panel a few weeks ago. And they said to me, and by the way, I don't think I'll be invited back. They said to me, Stephanie, what's the number one question that a senior executive would ask an executive coach? And I said, that's super easy. I want to know every failure. I want to know how you failed. I want to know how you pivoted. I want to know what happened next for you. I want to know if you ever made the same mistake, not knowing it was the same mistake. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your failures. I don't want to talk about your wins. Your wins or testimonials are all over your page or your social media. Where have you failed? It's not an upward trajectory. And there was a lot of silence. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about Zenefits. You've been there since 2017. You are an incredible, successful leader. What are your thoughts on all these expert coaches that are online? Yeah, so you paraphrased, you know, my thinking, obviously, because that that post was born out of, and I think we've all had this experience where, you know, I kind of read the constant stream of stuff. And then, of course, it's complemented by all the people that are coming to me trying to sell me something from time to time. And I just, I, that particular day, and I've had many days like this, where you just sort of feel like, okay, enough. I mean, stop it. You know, this notion that all of this, the way in which you're going to build companies is, is formulaic and that there's a, either a single way to do it or that, or that somehow you can basically string together a series of growth hacks in order to be able to get there. And, and by the way, it's perpetuated by the accelerators. I mean, you know, Y Combinator doesn't want to hear me say this, uh, nor, and I, I'm just picking on them. I could be picking on any number of them. And a lot of times the venture capital and private equity world doesn't really want to hear this either. You know, the, the notion that you've heard of T2D3, right, where they talk about, well, we're looking for companies that, you know, can triple in the first two years and double in the next, in the subsequent three. I mean, I know hundreds, not just dozens, hundreds of companies that have been able to do that in terms of the law of small numbers, because tripling in the first couple of years and doubling, I mean, it's not easy to do, but the reality is Companies do it all the time. And I know a lot of those companies that are actually pretty crappy companies. They're not actually good companies. They're not companies that I would invest in. They're not companies I would sit on on the board of. They're not companies that necessarily I would want to partner with. And so this notion that, you know, before I leave that diatribe, oh, so you're telling me that, you know, like up and to the right hyper growth is good. I mean, no kidding. Of course that's good. But at, at what cost... At what cost are we actually achieving those results? You know, are, are we in fact burning out our workforce? Are we actually spending a crazy amount of money in order to be able to pull that off? Um, you know, in the early day, days of Zenefits, the amount of money that was spent and the amount of over hiring and the amount of basically just laziness that was happening because yeah. the company had so much cash to work with was just stunning. And I know Zenefits is not alone in that. There are lots and lots and lots of companies no, right now sure. today that are operating just like that. And so, and so that's kind of what that was born out of is, is I'm trying to make sure that I do what was done for me when I was 30 years old and kind of pay forward, you know, the lessons I learned from people like Dave Duffield and Anil Bushri and, 
Hustle Plotner yes. at SAP. And I mean, I, I was lucky enough to work directly with all those guys in my really, really early years. And I, it was such a blessing. I mean, I, and I mean, I'm truly grateful because there's no way I, there's no way I would be sitting where I am today had I not had those experiences. And those guys taught me some really good foundational, fundamental things about how to operate and, and execute in the context of building a business. And it's frankly, it's not about hyperbole and it's not about this pablum that is passed around a lot today for business advice. And so when you go out and you pay attention to certain podcasts, you know, that are led by uh, venture capitalists that are passing along a lot of this bullshit as being actual real business advice, I just felt like somebody on the operating side from time to time needs to stand up and go, you know, actually, there's a different way of maybe viewing some of this in terms of what's really important. And, and you said it really well, which is, in fact, you asked a few minutes ago, what's your number one sort of, forget exactly what you said, but the, the number one dynamic around how you sort of see success. I'm trying to build a company that's resilient because I think resilience is one of the most critical things that companies have to have. We have to be able to adapt and adopt to the changing circumstances that are going on in our market constantly. And, you know, but see, people don't think about resilience. People think about exit. I know they don't think about resilience. I know. And, and, and you, it's, it's you, exit, you, exit, exit. You heard me before to talk about, I, for me, it's about execution. It's not exits. I mean, at the end of the day, yes. and you know, I understand that some of the constituents that you and I are working with all the time, they have certain time horizons that they would like to see things happen in. But the reality is, is that your investment time horizon has nothing to do with potentially where we are in any given moment based on the, the situation and the circumstances that we're operating within. And so I've had companies that have exited in 14 months, and I've had companies that have exited in 14 years, and then everything in between. Right. And so I just don't spend a lot of time thinking about the exits. I think a lot more about how do we build a company that is resilient, that is delivering on our value proposition, that is doing great things for customers. And then ultimately, how do I make sure that we're building a great environment for the thing that makes all of it go, which is my people? How do I make sure they love the work? They're inspired around the mission that we have, that they love their team. You know, they feel really uh, good about the way they've commingled their own personal brand with the company's brand. And then ultimately, the fact that they feel stretched, they feel motivated and activated by the work that they're doing. And, and they're feeling like they're in a situation where they can basically have a growth mindset and learn a lot. Because I think learning is one, I mean, there's a really good book by a friend of mine named Neil Doshi, who wrote a book called Prime to Perform. And I would recommend anybody that's listening to go find that book because he talks about total motivation and he talks about the importance of learning in building any good company and making sure that people are feeling like they're being stretched. Constant and curious student. Totally. Constant and curious student is so important. Yeah. I mean, hey, that's, hey, that's, what I, that's what I hire for, Stephanie, is, is when I, every time I'm in an interview, ultimately... We can teach them sometimes how to do a lot of the things that they may or may not have experientially, but I can't teach right. growth mindset. I can't teach curiosity no. to your point. And so oftentimes that's what I'm looking for. Right, so you're, I'm hired. You're hired. I'm, you're hired. Oh my God, you're so hired. I'm hired. Perfect. 
Okay, awesome. I'm going to tell Rebecca. She's my favorite person ever. (laughs) What would your leadership team say about you if it wasn't going to get back to you? If it wasn't ever, ever going to get back to you, what would your seat, what would your, your first level report say about you? Occasionally, they'd they'd love it if I was a little less long winded. They'd like me to, you know, spare the lecture. Rebecca didn't say that. and get to the heart of things. I, I think the other thing might be that um, from time to time, I tend to take a trust and verify approach to a lot of things. And so sometimes the verification can be a little painful because I, I actually want to see the data. I want to see the analysis. I want to see the re- the actual evidence that we've done the right thing. I don't just want to trust that we're doing the right thing. And it's not that I don't trust you. It's that I need to be convinced and clear that we're actually getting the actual outcome that we set out to get. And so I think sometimes the trust and verify thing, it can wear on them a little bit. Jay, I just, I can't say enough about you. I just love and adore you so much. You know that this entire show is on obstacles and opportunities. What is the biggest obstacle that you've been able to flip into an opportunity? You know, I think in general, We've recapitalized Zenefits, and I think the biggest obstacle we had in the early days is Zenefits was sort of the poster child for a super over-exuberant set of expectations around valuation and kind of how investors can get very, frankly, absurdly overheated about how they sort of think about ownership allocation and all the rest. And oh, by the way, if that sounds familiar to a lot of people that are listening, that's because it is pervasive at this point, um, where we've got all kinds of yes, companies sir. that are just crazily overvalued. And I'm very proud of the fact that me and my team have been able to kind of take that dynamic and transition that over several years to a place where now I think we're in a, in a much, much better position where we've got good alignment between our shareholders and our employees, and our customers, and our partners, so that all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, all the stakeholders have alignment and a belief system in in how important Zenefits is as a company. And so that's a process I just put into a sentence that sounds probably a little easier than it actually was, because it was a lot of work. But I'm really proud of what we've been able to pull off. Where do our listeners find out more? Where can they watch you? Where can they learn from you? How do they How do they see what you're doing? Yeah, that's great. I mean, obviously, if you go to the Zenovitz website, we have an awful lot of material there. and It captures all of the stuff that I'm doing on either social media or podcasts like this. The other place I would send everyone is workest.com. It's W-O-R-K-E-S-T.com. It, that is a great resource for everything HR and in sort of uh, advice and guidance related. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of companies that come to that site every single month. So don't miss uh, the opportunities there on Workus. It's completely free and you do not have to be a Zenefits customer. And obviously on, on Twitter, it's JB Fulcher. And obviously anybody that wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm easy to reach. So would love to engage with anybody and everyone. Jay, this has been so much fun. And we will, just so you know, we will link the book. We'll link the websites um, to this podcast. And every single time I learn something, it is just so amazing. So thank you so much for yeah, taking the Stephanie, time. Yeah, Stephanie, thanks for doing this too. I, I, I've had a chance now to look through a lot of the other podcast work that you've done. And, and it's really cool when, when you're actually actually dealing with substantive issues and really getting behind sort of the headlines, as it were, in terms of like what some of these topics are all about. You do a great job of that. You know you do. And uh, so I appreciate it. And I really appreciate you having me. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E, Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.